Hello, my name is David Weiss. Welcome to Up North Bonsai. This podcast is a chance for me to talk to and learn from bonsai enthusiasts from all around the Upper Midwest. There's an ever-increasing number of amazing bonsai professionals who have set up shop most often on or near the coasts. Those of us living in the Upper Midwest need to adjust what we learn from those professionals to our colder climate. We have a shorter growing season in the Upper Midwest, and as we all know from our climate, it's always changing. I believe there is a lot we can learn from each other about how to create beautiful bonsai in North Country. My goal is to help others enhance their bonsai journey in their microclimate. For me, bonsai is all about the journey. I'm a firm believer in lifelong learning and hope this podcast can spread good information to those just getting into the hobby, or in my case, lifestyle. This podcast covers bonsai enthusiasts in the upper Midwest from people living in zones 3, 4, and 5, including my home state of Minnesota, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, and Nebraska. We also venture to Canada. Join me now as we head up north and talk bonsai. On today's show, we head a little south and talk with the president of the Iowa Bonsai Association, Scott Allen. Scott's been working with bonsai since the day his wife said they just couldn't put any more trees on their property. Smaller trees became a new way of keeping him busy. We talk about how he gets through the four solstices in central Iowa. It's time for Up North Bonsai. We begin today's podcast talking about how it all began for Scott, his microclimate, and what he feels is the trickiest part of bonsai in central Iowa. We talk wind and heat and his love for collecting trees, and how watering and really getting to know your trees are the most important parts of bonsai. Fill us in. Uh, how did bonsai get started for you? It's kind of funny. I mean, I come from a gardening background. My ancestors, uh, when they came to the United States, they were gardeners. That's how they made their living in the late 1800s through the early mid-1900s. Gardening is, is in my blood. So how I got started in bonsai was I liked to landscape and I liked to garden. So I was planting trees in my yard all the time. And my wife finally came to me and said, no more trees in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> we can't plant any more trees in the yard. We already got too many. What do I do now? And um, my wife had knew and I had talked about bonsai for a while. And so my wife and my daughter bought me a small trident maple off of eBay and gave it to me for Father's Day. That's how my bonsai addiction began. <laughs> I love how you added the word addiction in there. That's, it's easiest to say that my wife and my daughter gave me the crack that I got addicted on. How fast did you get addicted? Like when your collection went from one to a hundred in how short a time? I, I had a couple hurdles in there. It went from one to probably five trees the first year. 
so I got my first bonsai tree and I showed up at the Iowa Bonsai Association meeting. I met some good people, um, some people that have become very, very close to over the years now. They invited me. They were starting a study group for, you know, I mean, people that are in the club that are really wanting to accelerate their learning and grow their collection. They were going to limit it to six things. And I was the sixth person. So I was excited. I joined. I showed up to the first study group. It was a weekend study group, eight hours each day. Uh, and we hired professionals. At the time, it was Gary Wood that came and worked with us three times a year for a weekend. Well, I yeah. showed up my first little trident bonsai. And within 15 minutes, I was done with my tree. And I still had another... 16 hours to go. <laughs> so that kind of accelerated me into buying more trees so that I had stuff to work on at study group. And, and the rest uh, is history, as they say. You know, eventually uh, I started collecting and now I have 300 trees. Tell me about your microclimate. What are you dealing with? What's your microclimate all about there? I'm in zone 5B. Some of my trees cannot stay out in, they're not hardy, so they have to be protected in the winter. A lot of my trees are left out. I just put them on the ground and that's where they stay. I am currently in the process of building a greenhouse. Um, I have a door left to build uh, as soon as this uh, cold front moves through. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm building a greenhouse so that I can, I can keep, I'd like to have a couple tropicals and I do have a couple small tropicals right now that I just winter in my home. My microclimate is the climate of central Iowa, uh, zone 5B. I've talked with other people. You could be down the road from me. You could be up on a hill from me. You could be down in a valley from me and you're going to grow bonsai slightly different. And that's the many nuances, of course, in this craft. And so that's why I'm very curious in central Iowa, you obviously are getting lows very similar to what Minnesota's getting right now here with these single digits, but you're typically warmer than us. So I'm, I'm curious, and I'm going to get to this question later, how you deal with the going from one season to the next with what you affectionately call on your um, Iowa Bonsai Association newsletter from May, I believe, the Bonsai Shuffle. I, I think a lot of people will will resonate with the bonsai shuffle. You know, you, you want to get your trees out, you know, e even if your trees aren't hardy in the spring when the temperatures are getting into the 50s and still going down into the 20s, you want to get your trees out and start getting them some sunlight, you know. So, so your special trees, you know, you'll bring out during the day and you'll bring them in at night. You know, I, I mean, so that's kind of the, the bonsai shuffle. And, and then it gets more drastic, obviously, early spring and late fall as we're bringing out, you know, 30 trees and they may stay out for three days until the temps go far enough down again that you want to bring them in. And then you bring them in for two days. Mm -hmm. You bring them out for five days. Thus the bonsai shuffle. 
so a lot of people talk about the, the regulation of our temps and, and just our climate for our trees, that we don't want to have a lot of those huge spikes and peaks and valleys. If you're bringing your trees in and out with your experience and what you're saying here, tell me then your how does that not create a little extra stress on our trees? Or is just that beautiful fresh air and sunshine just so much more worth the worry of a little bit of temperature extremes? The way I actually handle it is, you know, I have a heated area. So as I start bringing trees out, I start raising the temp in my shed in my winter storage. So when they go back in, they, they're not really seeing huge fluctuations of 50 degrees. You know, they might see a 15 to 20 degree fluctuation, which they see that every day, all year long anyway. What is the trickiest to the most difficult part about your climate there in central Iowa in dealing with bonsai? I don't think it, the trickiest thing is, is really climate related for me. Okay. For me, the trickiest part of doing bonsai in, in my area or any area is actually um, getting to know your trees. The hardest thing for me has been learning, you know, that this tree doesn't like as much sun, or this tree likes more sun, or this tree likes less water or more water. All of those variables more than really my climate. You know, I haven't tried to grow trees that I know shouldn't grow in Iowa. Let me ask another question rather related that and see if this has any effect on you either, just because I was, I was reading again some of uh, the newsletters on your guys' website there, uh, Iowa Bonsai Association, and um, one of your contributors, I noticed, had mentioned something about the wind. Is, is there a larger wind factor in Iowa, do you think, in other parts of the upper Midwest? Does wind bother your trees more or dry them out faster? You know, it doesn't for me. South of Des Moines, I don't know why, deals with a lot of wind. You know, I tie all of my trees down or the majority of my trees get tied down. Okay. You know, once, once I have a tree, I've figured out this is where this tree belongs. This is where this tree is happy. You know, I'll bungee cord it there and that's where it goes. And when it comes, you know, I put it up in the winter and it comes out in the spring, it goes back to the same spot. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I started collecting about 10 years ago and, you know, you collect a understory Engelman spruce and you collect an Engelman spruce that's out on a, a, a ledge that gets... 16 hours of sunlight a day and you think well they're both Engelman spruce this Engelman spruce here loves being out in the sun and this Engelman spruce should too well that's not the case uh -huh. I mean that tree that's probably been growing under story for 150 years just because you collect it and bring it out and now it can get all the sunlight that doesn't mean that's what that tree wants for sure for sure. Excellent point. I mean, that tree still needs to be an understory tree. And mm -hmm. while they're both Engelman spruce, the foliage on the trees are different. A lot of our members go collect tamaracks, the larch, and they're collecting these trees. And I've been on a trip or two myself, but we're collecting them in these bogs, you know, right. these stick, stick tall trees that are from bogs. But then we take them out of there and bring them home. It's not the same environment. No, you just, you, you got to keep them, you got to keep them moist. I, I collect a lot of trees from what they call fins. A fin is basically similar to a bog, 
Okay. It is only wet for most of spring and into summer. Okay. Um, it's from it's from runoff. The roots grow above. So basically, when you're walking in these fens, you can actually look out and see the roots of these trees. You sure. can see root ball because they don't grow down. They yeah, just they grow. grow this clump. Yeah, the um, tamarack and our bogs, you can see a lot of the roots growing out into the sphagnum moss. And a lot of those right. upper roots can die off. But uh, the roots are very different than what you would typically see in a tree, for sure. When we talked about winter solstice, Scott and I talked about his cold frame, the question to light or not light that cold frame, and how he's lost a few trees over the years when the watering was not quite done as best as it could have been done. What are you doing for your trees in winter? What does winter look like for you with Bones Eye Care? So for me, I have a 10 by 16 fully insulated shed with a lot of windows in it that all of my stuff that needs to be protected goes in. So that's all my Japanese maples. That's my cherries. That's my, any really special tree that I have that I, that I'm working on and I don't really want to take the chance on where my junipers go. What's your experience or your thought to light or not to light in a cold frame slash shed uh, over the winter months? Well, I mean, if a tree's if a tree's dormant, it doesn't need light. Right. Oh, you know? I mean, that's a fact. That's proven. You know, a lot of these trees in the mountains get covered in ten feet of snow, and they don't see any light until that snow melts. You know, this this may sound weird, but I think you know bonsai enthusiasts will understand. I mean, these trees are my babies. For sure. Yeah. And I go out and look at them every day. Absolutely. So when I'm out there, I need light to see. I turn the light on. I look at trees. I, you know, I have, um, you know, particular placement of certain trees in the, in the shed because they dry out fast, the fastest. Okay. So I go in there and look at four different trees and I know, okay, is it time to give these a little drink or am I still good for a couple of days? So I go in and look things over and then I leave the light on until sun goes down and then I'll go turn the light off. I, and I would I, imagine with a 10 by 16 shed, you have a little a little room, well, until you fill it up tippy top, but you have some room to move and inspect a little bit better than something smaller. I don't know about that. It's full. I walk... <laughs> It's knowing your trees. I mean, I know these trees. I know the trees on the top shelf are there because they are the last to need water. I know that the other nine months of the year. So I can put those trees up there. And I know if the four trees that I use as my indicators start to look like they are ready for water, as long as I water, then I'm good to go. I've lost trees on the top shelf because they weren't watered and because I wasn't as anal about how I put trees in there. I mean, and, and that's taken years of, of trial and error, but I haven't lost a tree in there for probably a decade. All of the other trees that stay out, I have a patio in the, in the north um, west corner of my yard that I set all of my trees on and I put chicken wire around them so that the rabbits can't get in there and eat them. Mm -hmm. And 
I keep them on that patio all year long or uh, not all year long. I keep that for winter. And then issues with uh, smaller criddles, voles or mice or anything with your, uh, some of those trees. I really haven't had any problems with mice or voles. I seem to be having a couple that just won't go away. So, I mean, I'm not losing any big trees. My good trees are in cold frames and such, but uh, just, it's bothersome when you, even if you have a two, three-year-old uh, field maple or something that all of a sudden is girdled all the way around the bottom. I'm like, well, what are they yeah. doing? Who's doing it? That's not good. I mean, if, if I was having that happen, I would be putting some kind of tasty little nodule under there for them to yeah. chew on. So you mentioned watering then it sounds like, again, really it all goes back to your uh, main bullet point. It's really getting to know your trees. So when you're talking about watering or pest control or whatever you're doing in the winter months, wherever your trees are, it's really when you know your tree and where it is in that uh, cold frame or that storage facility and you're checking it every day, that's more almost as important, if not more than the actual act of watering, just knowing that tree very well. I believe that wholeheartedly. Like my buddy that lives south of Des Moines that has the wind, you know, I can ask him, you know, hey, how's this tree reacting? And he'll, I mean, he can tell me, you know, I mean, real windy, you know, I got to water that tree every day or twice a day. Winds die, I know I can go a day and a half before that tree needs watering because as you know, and as many people that do bonsai know, the hardest thing related to bonsai, in my opinion, is watering. I mean, it's the hardest thing to learn. You get to know your trees and you learn how to water. And I mean, that can make all the difference in your trees, how fast they develop, um, how strong they are. You know, I, I mean, if, if you're giving a tree too much water every day and, it, and, it's, and it's surviving, uh, and then all of a sudden something happens and that tree's not getting watered every day. I mean, it can go down really quick. So, you know, these trees, I believe anyway, I believe these trees, they become um, dependent on us. They are dependent on us. And once we're not there, it's, that can go from a tree that's thriving to a tree that's dying in a matter of days to where in the wild that tree may not have, you know, gotten water for a month right yeah it is amazing when you think about those comparisons and those those uh, opposite ends of the spectrum for sure so are there any trees that you work on at all in the winter is there any work done on the trees any variety not at my house okay once it's winter and it's cold like it is out there today at a high of probably 19 i don't do anything in the fall as it starts getting cold you know, I'll cut wire off of deciduous and rewire. Once winter hits and we're in winter, I don't do anything with the trees. I mean, I know a lot of people that do. I just do not. For the spring solstice, we cover fertilizing, pests, and of course, the busy season of repotting. Scott talks a little about the difference between a tree and a development versus refinement stage, and I ask him about the idea of possibly repotting too early in the season. Springtime. So obviously, for most of us, spring, an enormously busy time of year. So when I when I say the word spring and bonsai, what's the first thing that pops up in your brain? <laughs> <laughs> There's not one thing. Yeah. Um, when, when you talk about spring and the tree starting to move in bonsai, it's, 
Um, you said it. I mean, it's a very, very busy time of year. For me, uh, it could be repotting. You know, if, if I've got 20 trees that I collected three years ago that are now going into their first bonsai container, repotting is the thing that I'm thinking the most about. Having soil mixed up, ready to go. Early spring, I start getting all of my soil mixtures together so that when I start, our trees tell us when it's time to repot them. We don't get to say, oh, I don't have anything going on this Saturday. (laughs) No, I mean, if, if, if your deciduous trees are swelling, it's time. And Saturday might be too late. In your experience in central Iowa, can you repot a tree too early or is, you know, you're always, always safe because you can put it back in that shed and it's protected in case of elements. Is, is that, it too early that, a time? You know, if you don't have the facilities, you absolutely can repot it too early. I mean, I have a couple trees that actually get repotted in, you know, sometimes into February, Chojabai, Ume, you know, them trees, they start going way earlier than any other tree. If, if I have something like that, that I have to repot, it just comes in the house with me two or three weeks. Okay. As far as repotting is concerned, the bulk, it usually starts for me late March and goes through April, unless that's a tropical. And then that's June, July, but that's exactly how I handle it. You know, the tree tells me it's time to repot. I repot it. It goes back in the shed and it doesn't get below 45. Only the trees on the floor freeze and they lightly freeze. They don't get frozen hard. So that's, that's definitely how I handle it. For the beginners out there, is there a difference in this spring repotting busy, crazy season for you between a refined tree and one that's just in massive uh, push out development stage? There's huge differences in repotting a refined tree or a tree that's going to get its first repotting. If you just have a tree that's 10, 15, 20 years old, that's, you know, fairly in the starting to really be in that refinement stage versus a couple of year old tree that now you're new to bonsai and you're just, you're pushing growth and you just, you know, is there a major difference between those two, you know, that refined tree? versus uh, just a young tree as far as that repotting? Or is it pretty much, like you said, the tree is ready to repot when it's starting to swell? You, you, you know your tree, you repot it whenever that time comes? So, I mean, all of this depends on the tree. And, and is, is this a deciduous tree? Is it a conifer? Right. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of variables in there. The techniques of repotting, and, and again, one thing I need everybody to know is I, I don't profess to be a professional or I am just a serious hobbyist that's been doing it a while. I, I still work with professionals every year. We still have our study groups. I'm still learning. I, I'm just telling you that what I believe, but deciduous conifers are totally different. I don't think the techniques of actually doing the repotting change. When you're repotting trees that are in development, you can be more aggressive or, or feel to be more aggressive than what you would be a, 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 a tree that's been in a pot for a hundred years. Yeah, for sure. That tree is already in the right size pot. You can pull it out, do a little bit of work and put it right back in a, you know, a, a pot opposed to 
a tree that you collected five years ago, you know, in the Rocky Mountains, and it's got a three foot long root that's in a box that you need to at some point get that down to 10, 20 inches. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a lot more aggressive, I think, with trees that are in development than you are that are already in the right size container and, and have been in a right size container for a long time. Yeah, for sure. The working on a huge um, black pine that I got 15 years ago from Telperian Farms. And just in the last three to four years, the tree is really coming into its own. And up until the last three or four years, it's been, you know, I mean, I repotted every two or three years, whittle mm -hmm. it down, get it down. Well, I finally got it into a 11, 12 inch pot. So, you know, I mean, I'm not going to have to be as aggressive on repotting. And, and quite frankly, I won't have to probably repot that tree for five to 10 years. Yeah. Talk about fertilization for spring and, you know, which ones are you fertilizing right away? Which ones do you hold off in? And uh, how does that look for you in your climate? So the, as you mentioned, that's a hot topic. I mean, you can talk to five different bonsai people and you're going to get five different answers on fertilization. Yeah. And so what I'm curious about is you, what is working for you? I fertilize deciduous spruce. I mean, I start fertilizing them right away. Ponderosa pines, I don't fertilize all year long until they drop their third year needles. Oh, okay. It's then setting buds for the next year. And at that point, I'm feeding it 2020-20, you know, Alaska 2020-20 or Jack's 10-20-30 or, or something like that. Ponderosa pines that I've collected within the last three years, I fertilize them just like I do everything else. You can come into my garden and you can look at trees that are still in development that I've collected and you can see the original needles and then you can see the new needles that are coming on are much longer. Mm -hmm. That tree's been getting water and food as much as it needs. Mountains, it was struggling to stay alive. Then once I put that into a right size pot, that tree no longer gets fed in the spring. It only gets after the third year needles drop. And then I'm at that point, I'm trying to reduce the needle length. But deciduous, I start right away in the spring. Spruce, I start right away in the spring. Um, I'm feeding them BioGold. Uh, Hollytone is the organics that are going on it. Once every two weeks, I feed it with Neptune, which is seaweed fish emulsion. Mm -hmm. And then on the off weeks, I'll feed it with, I'll feed it with um, Jack's or miracle grow or something like that. How do you deal with pest control in your climate? Do you have pests? Do you deal with them a lot? Is it in check? How's that going for you, the pest, pest world? Well, I mean, everybody has pests. You know, I've not met anybody that does bonsai that says, I don't have them, I don't worry about them. I can tell you that the way I do my spraying is I don't really, and I haven't really had any severe cases of any pests. In the spring, as um, my conifers are actually opening and the needles are starting to harden off, I'm spraying 
um, antifungus during that time until the needles are hardened off. The pest that I deal the most with is girdle borer, and that's only by individual trees that I collect that had it when I collected it. Have I had scale before? Yeah, I've had scale, but I look at my trees every day and I catch it quick enough that I can get rid of it with something simple. You're, you're definitely more of a proactive person than a reactive person then. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yes, if I see something, I don't, just, I don't just spray pesticides just because. My trees are healthy. And healthy trees are harder, a lot more, they're more resilient. They don't just, you know, you get an unhealthy tree and then stuff can get started. But if I see something, I aggressively spray um, everything. If mm -hmm. I see still on one tree, every tree gets sprayed. Okay. We'll move on to uh, summer in a second. One, one last question about springtime. What, for again, for someone who's young and just getting into this bonsai world, What's, what's kind of a springtime tip? Just one of your things that just kind of saves you or just makes your trees do better. What, what, what's a good tip for people for springtime? I don't even want to pretend like I have something for that, honestly. Yeah. Well, um, it sounds like by your answers before, you had mentioned just enough things to say that you, you just have to be prepared for spring with the soil being ready and you know what trees might need repotting more than others. I think preparation of what's to come seems to be the strongest tip I would hear in what your answers were. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think, you know, probably what I would say to that question is it's, it's no different than any other time of year. Pay attention, you know, um, and I don't care if it's spring, summer, fall or winter. Yeah. The number one piece of advice I could give somebody that's, that's getting into bonsai is pay attention to your trees. You cannot be afraid of commitment because these trees are a commitment. They're not gonna do well if you're not paying attention to them. For sure. For the summer solstice, we talk about how important having shade is to our trees, including shade cloth. Scott talks about having places to move your trees around to keep them happy, especially when the central Iowa heat sets in. Central Iowa, it's summertime there. What are your trees going through? What do you need to do to keep your trees thriving? As, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I know most of my trees. You know, I collect 15, 20 trees a year. Um, but I know because I dug them where they came out of. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm just dealing with, with heat just like anybody, you know. I mean, we're getting stretches nowadays. You, you know, we're getting weeks with temps in the high 90s and low you know 100 105 um you know that's hard for a lot of trees so the trees that i have that are out in full sun can handle it you know i might move a couple trees you know i have a couple trees that like four to five hours of sun um but when it starts getting 100 i might move them into into an area that you know might get an hour two hours of full sun when it's on those real hot days. Sure. Um, but my garden is set up to where, you know, I have benches and I have space where I can juggle some stuff around as needed for a few days and then move it back. You know, in Central Ohio, I'm just dealing with, you know, some, some hot stretches like last spring. You know, I was starting to contemplate uh, uh, an approach to too much rain. 
you know, am I going to, am I going to come up with some kind of wrap that I can put over these trees, you know, so that they're not waterlogged for 10 days. I keep thinking about our June last year in Minnesota and my net, you know, we had a lot of drought in Minnesota last year. And last year, June, we kicked off the month. The first two weeks of June had 11 days over 90. The heat was there earlier and it was drier and there was, it was just so little rain last year. So so last year, we really had to adjust our, our thinking. And one of the things that uh, us club members talked a lot about in some of our fundamental groups and the, the topic of shade cloth has come up a lot in the last 12 months, it seems, in my circle of communication with bonsai people. And do you have any shade cloth in Iowa? Do you deal with that? Or you just got shade from trees? Or, you know, you say you have multiple places to put your trees, but does shade cloth enter your uh, equation there? It has not. I use the back of my garage, which is north facing. I have shelves and benches all over the back of my garage. Okay. So all of my collected trees that I collect. So I go out, say South Dakota, and I collect 10 trees. When I get home with them, those trees, it doesn't matter if they were growing in full sun or not. They were recently dug. So they go into the shade on the back of my garage. For sure. Yeah. And they stay there for the whole year. Then the next year they'll go into full sun. But I also have areas on the west side of my lot that have trees, a lot of trees. So depending on where I put trees there, they could be in shade all day long. Or if you move further north, they can be in shade for, you know, they can get sun for four hours and then be in shade the hot time. So I have areas in my yard where I can really just place trees where those trees want to be. Ponderosa pines, I don't care how hot it gets. I don't care how hot the sun is. That tree will take as much sun as you will give it and it will love it. That's just my personal experience with the Ponderosa pines. Yeah, I do not have one, but uh, I do. I have heard they like sun. They love sun, as as does a black pine, as do some of the Engelman spruce that I have. Okay, yeah. I acquired a lot of shade cloth from a buddy of mine whose father was way into azaleas, and he had shade cloth all over their backyard while he was propagating and taking care of azaleas. A good friend of mine, and I don't, you may or may not know him or have heard of him, Todd Schlaffer. Todd um, is a bonsai professional. He lives in the Denver area and he just put shade cloth over his, you know, I think it's 80% of his garden. Really? Now has shade cloth. Now, that being said, he was actually here working with me for three days and it was a hundred and something in Denver three days in a row. So he was figured freaking out. So he went ahead and pulled the trigger and had shade cloth put over his garden. But up until two years ago, he had a huge cottonwood tree that provided him a lot of shade and he had that removed. So, so he needed shade cloth. <laughs> well, let's circle back to watering then. So boy, summer, heat, wind, we talked about earlier. You talked about watering being the trickiest part of bonsai. So you're watering your trees in the summertime, I would imagine, uh, multiple times a day. What does that look like for you? Um, I, only have, I only have a couple trees that have to be watered a couple times when it's real hot. Okay. And they're both trees. They're, all of those trees are on slabs. 
Oh, okay. The rest of my trees I have in pots. I, I, I'll water once a day. Okay. Very rarely do I have to water my entire garden twice in a day. I typically water in the morning. In the afternoon, when I get home from work or when I get out there, I'll just walk around with my watering can. And usually there's only a couple trees and they're both slabs that may need water that afternoon. You know, depending on the tree and depending on how thoroughly it was watered in the morning, there yep. might be stragglers that also I might give a dash of water to get it through the night until the next morning. But I don't water many trees twice a day. For the fall solstice, Scott says it's one of the busiest times of year for him. We talk about heavy fertilization and about being in the bonsai clubs. I asked him how they balance keeping the club viable for all three levels of bonsai, the beginners, the intermediates, and the advanced. Fall, central Iowa, your bonsai, what, what does it look like? Um, fall for me for is probably the most aggressive time for feeding trees. You know, every tree is storing up energy for the next year. Mm -hmm. So in the fall, I'm, I'm feeding trees heavily. Um, you know, ponderosa pine fall is the best time to work on a ponderosa pine. Um, so if, if I got, you know, major work to do on a ponderosa pine, heavy bins, I'm doing it in the fall. You know, I'm getting my shed cleaned out because I've stacked shit in there all year. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm holding my breath, waiting for the colors of the hornbeams and hawthorns and maples to come on. I always look forward to that standard stuff. I don't, you know, uh, in the fall, we really start pushing, you know, winter care at the club talking to people, answering questions about, you know, winter care, how, how people are doing it, just stuff like that. It sounds like the club experience has been good for you. Do you have any uh, thoughts you'd share to new folks who, is it worth joining a club or not? Your thoughts on that? I think I would say it depends on the club. Um, <laughs> Best words in bonsai. Well, it depends. I'll be honest with you. When I started, when I joined the Iowa Bonsai Association, you know, I'm, kind of a guy that I'm either all in or I'm not. Okay. And I joined the Iowa Bonsai Association at the time and they were they were meeting on Tuesday evenings at 7 p.m. Well, you would show up at 7 p.m. and say hello to a few people and get the business portion of the meeting out of your way and you got 15 minutes to look at a tree. It, that wasn't working for me. Right. I, I joined a bonsai association. I want to work on bonsai trees. Yeah. Uh, you know, I slowly kind of grabbed the reins per se and said, I think this is what we should do. Sure. And we went and we moved from from two hours on Tuesday nights to four hours on Saturday mornings. And that's been really good for us. So I think clubs are a great way to learn, but not all clubs are created equally. For sure. Um, when I first joined the Iowa Bonsai Association, I would not have recommended it to somebody else who was new and to somebody else who reacts like I do. Like I said, I, if I start something, I want to learn it. I'm in, I'm going to do it. I'm committed. 
I don't want to go someplace and I want to learn. Iowa Bonsai Association is like that now. Yeah. Let me ask you a follow-up question in relationship to what you just shared. How do we provide that high intensity with all three main levels of bonsai, the beginners, the intermediates, and the advanced uh, guys who've been around for a long time? How do you, how do you how do you recommend personally, or how have you maybe had success with the Iowa Bonsai Association in kind of catering to as many people as possible? I know you can't please everybody, but do you have some thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, what it requires is it requires committed people. You know, you, you have to cater to beginners, cater to intermediates, and you definitely have to keep the advanced people growing. The yeah. only way you're going to do that is to have somebody in the organization committed to each of those levels. So you have somebody that works well with beginners, that's committed to beginners. Yeah. Inner start that person or persons attach themselves to them beginners. Hell, they get to a point where they're intermediate. And then you have another group of people that cater to the intermediate. And then you have a study group type of situation is what we do for the advanced people. And you're bringing in professionals to actually keep the advanced people learning and growing because what happens is if if you have the advanced people always just working and and concentrating on the beginners those advanced people are going to lose interest and they're not going they're going to be like this ain't what i signed up for there are people in clubs and everybody has different strengths and different weaknesses yeah you you talk to your club the, the the body of your club and you ask Hey, is anybody interested in, in working with the beginners when they come? We right. need somebody that's going to commit to that. Um, yeah. What be, um, okay, the club buys um, 10 trees that the club's responsible for. And then when new members come, they foster a tree to a new member. Excellent. So then that new member now has a stake in the game because that member is responsible for a tree. Yeah, that's fabulous. And there are going to be trees that die because of it. Sure, absolutely. And and that don't come back. But there are trees that are going to thrive and you're going to have beginners that go to intermediate because of that investment. That's excellent. I love that. For us, the way I handle things being the president of the Bonsai Association here now, is once somebody's intermediate, then I have them people come and help me at my garden. Sure, sure. (laughs) And then once people become advanced, then I'll invite them people to come and help me and a few other advanced people that take care of the Bonsai collection at the Botanical Garden. Yeah, we have a few of those with our Como collection. Yeah, excellent. So that's how we now address trying to keep everybody intrigued. And as you said so eloquently at the very beginning of that answer, as it takes committed people. So, you know, that you got to have people on board or it's not going to happen. You know, as, as the president of a few different organizations, I sometimes, when I approach somebody to be on my board or on the board of directors for this given, for any given 
you know, I'm president of two different nonprofits. When I get somebody interested in the board of director, the first thing I tell them is this is this position isn't by title only. Right, right. You know, if you're going to be a board of director, I'm going to expect a lot out of you. Yeah. You know, and that's exactly how I handle the mentorships of different levels of bonsai in the bonsai club. Yeah. You know, I have two guys that are great. I mean, they're phenomenal with new people. We get new members and Ron and Dan are, I mean, they're on it. Boom. Like Nebraska's Bonsai Society has Max Miller, who Max used to be in the Central Iowa Blue Society. Max is phenomenal at that very same thing. As we were wrapping up, I asked Scott about his thoughts on native trees and collecting trees. So you're a collector, you're a big collector and you go elsewhere. So my last question kind of relates to that. And um, there always seems to be discussion, at least in my years in Bonsai, about um, the trees that you get. And so, you know, if I'm living in central Iowa or I'm living in central Minnesota, what trees should I get so I can have success? What's your philosophy on native trees in general? And you go out collecting them, then bring them back to your neck of the woods. So is that a contra- conflict of interest at all? What, 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 what about native species in uh, your experience or just what your thoughts are on natives? I collect. I'm not an advanced collector. I'm not an, a novice collector. I'm just a collector. Okay. The reason that I go to the mountains and collect is because I prefer conifers. In Iowa, there's a lot of collecting going on in Iowa. Um, The guy that I collect with in the mountains, he collects a lot of elm. Um, He goes up into Wisconsin, collects hawthorn, um, some birch, um, a few tamarisk or larch. I'm not opposed to that. And at some point I will do that, but I'm not retired yet. I still have my job. I love to be in the mountains. I've, I've hiked in, in the mountains and went backcountry hiking since I was 16 years old. So the reason that I go to the mountains is I love to be in the mountains and I love conifers. So that works great for me. As far as, as, far as native trees, um, you know, I've, I've collected here in Iowa. I am, I am an oak that I collected. You know, I just don't do a lot of it in my state harder to keep trees alive though that like if you're i mean obviously you know you talked about the trees like our japanese maples or black pines and we have to protect them in the winter and that kind of thing when you bring trees like that and of course tropicals in the upper midwest we have to bring them indoors is it just asking a lot to have people try to keep trees alive by having all those more typical uh, bonsai varieties uh, versus a native tree or is it just native trees just don't have that allure don't have the right leaf size and perspectives. Uh, when you say native, do you mean native to my state or because more native to the region? So, yeah. So if you're talking upper Midwest, you know, yeah, you're going to get a tree that is more native to this part of the country for sure. Right. I, I think if you're digging trees out of your state, out of the railroad tracks down the road from your house, obviously that tree's surviving in our climate. So it's probably a pretty safe assumption that that tree is going to do well in your area. For me, 
You know, I have subalpine firs that I've collected at 30 feet from tree line and they're thriving. Are they? Um, I didn't know they would. Sure. I loved it. It looked like it was collectible. I worked on it for a little while. I collected yeah. it and going nuts here. But someone in Texas and Florida might not have the same success, right? Exactly. You're exactly. <laughs> Somebody in Texas and Florida are not going to have the same success because they, in that climate, they don't go dormant. These yeah, trees right. need to go dormant. Like right. my pine, pines, they do better if I leave them outside than put them in the shed. Deeper dormancy. Yep. They go deep dormant and they like that. Yeah. They, they need that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, honestly wondered when I collected my collected my first subalpines because they they don't grow below 10,000 feet as far as I know they don't grow below 10 I've not seen one below 10,000 feet personally Mm -hmm. I thought I have a tag I can collect this tree I'm gonna try it and the first one I collected survived great did great so the next year I went back and and collected some more of them yeah that's that's fantastic well, hey, Scott, I won't take any more of your time. Uh, this has been a uh, joy. I, I can talk bonsai all day with anybody who wants to. So I appreciate your time and, uh, and uh, how you do things down there in Iowa. And as we mentioned earlier, um, yeah, if uh, there's some connection later on in the next year and you come up north for, for a little bit, we'd lo- I'd love to have you. And we can uh, go look at some uh, possibly some larch bogs together. That'd be great. That sounds good to me. Well, very good. Have yourself a good final couple of days of 21 and uh, hope 22 is better. Or uh, if, if, if 21 was not good for you, I wish you the best in the new year. Yep. I appreciate it, David. And again, I would uh, mention that you get a hold of Max Miller in Nebraska and talk to him as well. All thanks, right. Thanks, David. Scott. Have a good one. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. My thanks again to Scott Allen of the Iowa Bonsai Association for taking the time to talk bonsai with me. I truly appreciated the chance to talk with him. That does it for another edition of Up North Bonsai. Take care of you, take care of your bonsai, and we'll head up north together again and talk bonsai very soon.